Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Good morning. Second scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said, now when the human one comes in his majesty and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of him. He will separate them from each other just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who will receive good things from my father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to you, reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it, for one of the least of these. You haven't done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Today's uh, sermon really is a sermon about heroes, or, or my heroes at least. I'd like to tell you about some of my heroes. Some you will have heard of, some you will definitely not have heard of, and that's how it goes. Um, uh, some are famous, some not so famous. But before I tell you about my heroes, I, I'd like for you just for a moment to reflect for yourself, who do you look to as a hero? Who are the heroes in your life? Who do you admire and, and why do you admire them? 
Who do you wish you could be more like? Why are these particular people your heroes and not others? What, what makes them, in your eyes, special, important, significant, heroic? Are they famous? Do they have some talent that you wish you had? Have they accomplished something that you wish you could accomplish? Do they possess something that you wished you possessed? Maybe fame, maybe fortune, maybe a, a talent, a skill, an accomplishment, a lifestyle. I'll admit my heroes have changed and evolved throughout my life. When I was a child, all of my heroes were in comic books. They all had super powers or, or were heroic in their, you know, being able to save the day. I knew even as a child, Batman, Spider-Man, Superman were all fictional, but I fantasized about living in a world where those kind of heroes really existed and wished I could be one of them. As I matured, I put up posters on my walls in my bedroom of sports figures that I respected. I had a poster of Magic Johnson when he played for the L.A. Lakers and, and Ron Jaworski when he was quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles and Reggie Jackson when he pay, played for the New York Yankees. I even had a, a, a picture I had cut out of a muscle and fitness magazine of Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was competing as a bodybuilder and I went and bought a very cheap set of weights and worked out in my basement because I wanted to look just like Arnold. I didn't ever look just like Arnold. I also had a poster of Farrah Fawcett hanging on my wall, and I certainly admired her, but I wouldn't call her one of my heroes. That's a different story. But over the years, my heroes have changed. I, I still respect athletes for their physical conditioning and their training and their accomplishments, their abilities. I, I still, you know, admire different celebrities for their talents and ability to, to make me laugh at times. There, there are people in the business world, business leaders and entrepreneurs that I've learned leadership from, but I don't necessarily aspire to be one of them. There are people who run for public office, and I vote faithfully, but I don't always respect all of those people, um, maybe as much as they deserve. I don't know. You decide that. There is, I think, a cult of personality in our culture that kind of weirds me out, <laughs> people that we adore, and I wonder why. Increasingly, my heroes are men and women some we know and some you've probably never heard of that have given their lives to service in service to others. People who have dedicated their lives tirelessly to making the world a better place. I just want to tell you about a few of them. Uh, one of them was a, a man who lived in the 13th century in Italy. His father was a, a self-made man, a very wealthy cloth merchant. And so this person I'm telling you about grew up in incredible privilege and wealth and yet rejected it because he sensed the call of Jesus to a more radical way of living. His name is St. Francis of Assisi, and probably many of us have statues of him in our gardens. That's kind of how the world knows him. Uh, mostly we know because he loved nature, but there was way more to him than that. Uh, one day, Francis, young, early in his calling, was praying in this 
church that had mostly fallen down. It was in ruins and had been abandoned. And while he was praying, he heard the voice of Jesus say, rebuild my church, which is obviously in disrepair. Well, he took it literally. He thought that he was supposed to rebuild that church, and so he did. He started gathering materials. He started rebuilding the church. But he came to realize that the church Jesus was talking about was the Roman Catholic church of the medieval time that had given itself completely to power and wealth and privilege and had forgotten its spiritual core and its commitment to the poor. St. Francis, yes, he loved nature, but he lived a life of poverty and service to the poorest of the poor. And the way he lived attracted a massive following. He's responsible for what many believe was really the first reformation of the church, helping remind the church of why it exists. And by the way, his followers continue today as the Franciscan monks. I think of a man named John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, He too started a great spiritual revival, but he largely did it among commoners in England, working class, the poor. From the very beginning, as he preached the gospel, he also started programs to help people improve their health, to increase their education, literacy programs for adults, helping people get sober. From the very beginning of the Methodist movement, there's always been a balance of how we pursue what he called personal piety. It's your own spiritual life, your own spiritual growth, and how we pursue what he called social holiness, how we live for the sake of others, how we serve the world. I think of a man named Oscar Romero, who was bishop in El Salvador, who gave his life because he lined himself with the needs of the poor, the rights of the poor. He was actually martyred, murdered during a worship service as he was standing at the altar. I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership in the civil rights movement and the legacy of his dream that still isn't fulfilled, that one day all people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I think of Archbishop Desmond Tutu and his long fight against apartheid in South Africa. I think of a personal friend named Doña Maria Tomasa. Uh, Doña Maria Tomasa lives in a little village in Guatemala uh, called Chantala. Uh, She was born in poverty that you couldn't begin to imagine. Uh, She lived during the Civil War in Guatemala in which there were many, many atrocities. Um, One of those atrocities was finding her own husband uh, beheaded, uh, murdered on the path to her home. Uh, She and a number of widows came together to support each other and formed a weaving cooperative that's called Naomi and Ruth. Uh, If today you ever go to uh, any kind of shop that sells kind of world goods, you might find a textile, a purse or something from Guatemala with a name tag inside that says Naomi and Ruth. Uh, Doña Maria Tomasa is the president now of that organization, an international organization that benefits the widows uh, that suffered so much during the war. If you ever go with me to Guatemala, I'll take you to meet Doña Doña Maria Tomasa. I take you to her house, but I don't like the climb. It's too steep (laughs) both ways. She's an extraordinary lady. 
I think of, Maria, I think of Mother Teresa, uh, who lived in Calcutta among the poorest of the poor, the outcast, the dying, the sick, and orphans. And she said, a life not lived for others is not a life. In 1999, I had the privilege of being part of a group that was traveling to Seoul, South Korea. We flew through Los Angeles. We had a, a bit of a layover at the airport there. And there was a huge group there, much larger than my group, of, of volunteers for Habitat for Humanity that were waiting for a flight to the Philippines. They were going to the Philippines to build houses. I, I got up to go to the bathroom before our flight left. Um, and, and moments later, my friend Jay Ackerman uh, walked in behind me, he says, do you have any idea who was feet behind you, walking behind you on the way to the bathroom? I said, no, I don't have a clue. He said, it was President Jimmy Carter. He was walking right behind you. He was part of the group that was going to build houses in the Philippines. Uh, I missed him completely. Um, I don't know what you think of President Carter as a president, but the work he's done for Habitat for Humanity has been exceptional, and I hear he's a pretty good Sunday school teacher too. Well, I could go on and on. There are other people that, that are heroes in my eyes, and I'll tell you about a few more. But, but you may have noticed there's two things they all have in common. They're all people of faith, deep, deep spirituality, and there are people who've given their lives in service to the world, those two things. But I think what, what attracts me to them, what I admire so much about them, is those two things as they interconnect and interplay with each other. How deep faith in Christ has led to meaningful service to the world. Emily mentioned a moment ago, this summer we've been focused on First Church's vision to seek and love God, to love and serve people. Say it with me. Seek and love God, love and serve people. Good, you're getting it. That's good. Uh, we've talked a lot about what all that means, but today we're going to wrap it up really focused on the key, serving people, loving and serving people. Last week we talked about how we do that in the church, that there is service in the church, in the body, uh, using the gifts that God has given us. But we said even last week that as we serve in the church, it's to strengthen the church's service to the world. And so today that's where our focus is. How do we as a church and as members serve the world as Christ calls us to. I once heard two very simple questions that radically changed my understanding of church. Two very simple questions. One, whose church is it? In other words, who does it belong to? Whose church is it? And then the second question is, who is the church for? Whose church is it? And who is the church for? Now, I'm guessing you know the right theological answer. It's Christ's church, right? We said last week, we're the body of Christ. The church belongs to God. It's God's church. And if that's true, who is the church for? The church is for the world. God's desire is to save the world. We prayed a few moments ago, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's God's desire, that the kingdom of God be everywhere on the earth. We know that theologically. I didn't have to tell you that, I'm guessing. But in truth, we often act and think as though the church is whose? Ours. As though it belongs. It's my church. It's, it's, it's there for me, 
right? Who's the church for? Well, it's for me and for my friends and for my family. I go to church, my church, to get my spiritual needs met. Well, that's true. We do get our spiritual needs met at church. We come here for fellowship and for friendship and for entertainment and for edification and all those things. But we can never forget that this is Christ's church and we exist to serve Christ. And that God's purpose for the church is its presence in the world, to be God's presence in the world. That's what we exist for. Another of my heroes, Dorothy Day, who was a founder and leader in the Catholic worker movement, said, we should live in such a way that our lives wouldn't make much sense if the gospel were not true. We should live in such a way that our lives wouldn't make much sense if the gospel were not true. And how is the gospel, gospel means good news, how is gospel, how is our lives, how is our service good news for the world? One of the scriptures we read this morning, Pastor Emily read from Deuteronomy, and it repeated three categories of people over and over, widows, orphans, and immigrants. I think it said three or four times, care for widows, orphans, and immigrants, and it gave some specific ways that we're to do that. And the reason was that in ancient society, widows, orphans, and immigrants had no rights. They had no property. They oftentimes were dependent upon others. They'd been through uh, loss. They'd been through trauma. That's often why immigrants immigrate. They're, they're escaping one thing to hopefully find a better life. And God reminded the Israelites, don't ever forget you were slaves. And I heard your cries and I was compassion and I came to your aid. And that was always meant to be the ethos, the culture, the perspective of God's people. When there are people among you who are vulnerable, widows, orphans, immigrants, when there are people among you who are in need you are to show compassion and care and mercy toward them in the same way that I did for you. Never forget where you came from, slavery. One example we heard read is something called gleaning. When a farmer, an Israelite farmer, grew a crop, olives or grapes or wheat, when they went and harvested, they weren't to pick every grain. They were to pick what they needed to support their family and to Leave some margins for the poor, widows, orphans, immigrants. Leave it there intentionally so they too can have something to eat. Well, if we jump ahead to, to Jesus, Jesus clearly was part of that same tradition, caring for widows, orphans, and immigrants. But he, he really stretched out, right, who he understood to be the people of society that most needed care. You know, think about his ministry. He was always around people that were outcast, marginalized, people who were sick and hurting in all kinds of ways. So he included the hungry, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. In fact, he tells the story in Matthew chapter 25 that, that there will be a day in the future when all the nations will be gathered, not just the good people, not just the religious people, not just the Methodist people. All the nations will be gathered. But then there'll be a, a separating, like a, like a shepherd who separates sheep from goats. He's going to separate them. And he's going to say to one of the groups, I was hungry. 
and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And, and the ones who did that, people I would call heroes, people who served, they would say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? When you did it for the least of these, you were actually doing it for me. This is what liberation theologians call God's preferential option for the poor. God has a special heart for the poor and calls us to do the same. In fact, that's the invitation, that we begin to see people in this world the way God sees them, to view the world through gospel eyes, to, to, to view the world through, through eyes of compassion and mercy, to begin to see Christ in the people that God sees, that God sees that we often don't see. To see the face of Christ and the people that Mother Teresa called uh, Jesus in his distressing disguise. Or another author, Anne Lamott, says, everyone, no matter how seemingly vile, is secretly God in drag. I thought that was funny. Or Pope Francis, another of my heroes, says, appearances notwithstanding, every person, every person is immensely holy and deserves our love. But if we're honest, how often do we miss that? Do we not see people the way God sees them? How often do we see certain people because of the way they look, the way they live, the way they smell as potentially dangerous, as a threat to me and my family perhaps, as a criminal even, or just simply evil? How often do we assume that the poor or the oppressed or the disenfranchised deserve what they get or, or blame them for it? Or maybe even worse, how often do we just not see it all? How, do we, how often do we just live our lives in certain ways that we just avoid certain categories, groups of people and their plight and just not even know? Richard Stearns, who's president emeritus of World Vision, says, uh, kind of paraphrasing Jesus' story, I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. But Jesus obviously tells the story very differently. He, he tells the, the one group, I was hungry, and you fed me. But then he turns to the other group. He said, I was hungry, but you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was in sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. So away from me. Away from me. 
John Wesley, who again is the founder of our Methodist movement, once said, one of the principal rules of religion is to lose no occasion of serving God. There's no occasion of serving God. But he was pretty specific about how we do it. Sometimes we need kind of real tangible expressions. He said, since God is invisible to our eyes, we're to serve him in our neighbor, which he receives as if done to himself in person, standing visibly before us. In other words, when you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. I mentioned earlier uh, Mother Teresa. I, I never met Mother Teresa, never experienced Mother Teresa, but I have a friend who did and tells this story. Uh, my friend's name is, is Dr. Tom Neal. He's the, the dean at Notre Dame Seminary, Catholic Seminary in New Orleans. Tom is as much like Jesus as any person I've ever met. A good-hearted, deeply spiritual, kind compassionate man, and he is unbelievably brilliant. If Tom ever, ever, ever does the wrong thing, he learns from it. He wants to live his life in a very God-honoring kind of way and always has. Well, in the 1990s, he was working in Washington, D.C. at an AIDS clinic, uh, which was sort of the, the, an AIDS clinic, which was at the, the time that AIDS was sort of at the height uh, as an epidemic. There was still a lot of questions about um, how to, to help people with AIDS and how you get AIDS and, and fear. There was a lot of fear. Well, he was working in this AIDS clinic and Mother Teresa was in town. I think she was visiting the White House and word got out that she was going to come to the AIDS clinic that day. Well, can you imagine for a young Catholic person how important that would be? Mother Teresa's coming to visit us and so everyone in the clinic was scurrying to, to get things ready, make sure everything was just right and Tom was rushing to do the next thing and he was walking down the hall and he stumbles over one of their clients, a man with AIDS who's on the ground in the midst of a seizure. He's shaking violently and he's foaming at the mouth and spitting. And of course, bodily fluids were a concern. And so, so Tom, you know, he's distracted. He's getting ready for Mother Teresa. He stumbles upon this man. He doesn't know how to help somebody in the midst of a seizure. He's not sure whether it's safe to bend down and help him. He's, he's sort of in the midst, not knowing what to do. And the door next to him opens. And guess who's coming through the door? Mother Teresa, elderly Mother Teresa. And as soon as the door opens and she sees the man, she drops to her knees, she takes the man mid-seizure into her arms and holds him as he's shaking in her arms, foaming at the mouth. And she looks up at my very good friend Tom and says, this is how we love. This is how we love. Friends, if... Our vision at First Church is to seek and love the God of the Bible who cares for the poor and the needy, the widow, the immigrant, the orphan. And if our vision at First Church is to love and serve people who sometimes come to us as Jesus in his distressing disguise, if that's our vision, how will we love? How will we love? We won't all be heroes, famous heroes, like Mother Teresa or St. Francis or any of the others that I named or that you thought of. 
but every one of us can love and serve heroically. All of us. How will we love? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the heroes who inspire us, who challenge us, who set a great example for us. But we also confess it's easy to just dismiss them. They can do it. I'm not like them. I don't have their ability. I don't have their character. I don't have their talents. Lord, don't let us off the hook. Lord, you've given us a vision. You've taught us through your word and example in Jesus. Inspire us to serve as you serve. Teach us to love as you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.